0: purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply hi this is scott if you're a fan of the ancient world please help us get the word out like us on facebook follow us on twitter and rate the series on itunes thanks again for listening mm-hmm. He sacrificed a bull and a goat, and an eagle of Zeus swept down from the sky and picked up the heads of the animals. It then flew off, leading him to the sacred site where he should found the new city. The location was a small peninsula enclosed by a loop in the Orontes River and nearby lakes and marshes. He used the animal's blood to mark out the walls, then named the city after his wife, the daughter of a powerful warlord from Central Asia. This was the foundation myth of the Syrian city of Apamea, built by King Seleucus I for his Sogdian wife, Apama. And, considering an eagle also played a role in the sighting of Seleucia Piaria, Antioch, and Laodicea, it can probably be taken with a grain of salt. Either way, Apamea was located at a strategic crossroads for eastern commerce. It was also an important military base, holding 30,000 mares, 300 stallions, and, for one glorious period, 500 Indian war elephants. Over the long arc of Seleucid history, the city remained important and prosperous. And sometime in the mid-2nd century BC, a child was born in Apamea and given the name of Eunice. The name has the same root as Jonah or Jonas, meaning a peaceful being or a gift from God. And we'll just put a nice fat pin in that one for now. We don't know if Eunice was born in the city proper or in some outlying local village, and we're not exactly sure what year he was born. It was likely around the same rough time frame as our Syrian queen, Cleopatra Thea, which means he grew up under Demetrius I, as well as possibly Alexander Ballas, Demetrius II, and maybe even his brother, Antiochus VII. The very latest that Eunice might have lived in Apamea was 137 BC, when the city served as the final refuge of the usurper Deodotus Tryphon. Before it was besieged by Antiochus VII, then Tryphon was ejected and slain. What we do know is this. Sometime between the 160s BC and the execution of Deodotus Tryphon, the man called Eunice was enslaved. Unfortunately, in the Syria of the mid-2nd century, this was an all-too-common experience. According to historian John D. Granger, Syria had undergone civil warfare since Alexander Ballas landed at Ptolemais Acho in 152. The fighting had been intermittent, even sporadic, but had never really ceased, and had resulted in considerable destruction. One of the effects of ancient warfare was that captured prisoners, military and civilian, were more often than not sold as slaves. While captured mercenary soldiers could well be recruited into the victorious army, civilians, if they survived, were usually sold. Granger notes the cold mathematics. Armies always needed money— and the income generated from the sale of slaves could be used to pay the soldiers or to hire more. Individual soldiers' captures were considered personal booty. The effect of this practice on Syria can only be imagined. Wandering armies could easily capture slaves as they moved about, largely among the rural population, and no questions as to origins or loyalties would be asked. The enslaved prisoners were usually exported, and the main market became situated on the island of Delos in the Aegean. From there, most of the slaves seemed to have been sold on into the Roman dominions, notably southern Italy and Sicily. And I mean, not to belabor the point, but there are some real parallels to modern-day Syria— with a bunch of rival military forces and a population pretty much at their mercy. And, though it hardly needs saying, who ends up abused or enslaved has nothing to do with superiority versus inferiority, and everything to do with who has the weapons and authority. We don't know the exact scenario of Eunice's capture, but possibilities abound. He could have been captured by any of the rival armies that ravaged Syria between his birth and the reign of Antiochus the Seventh. He may have been taken when Antiochus's army besieged Apamea during his pursuit of Diodatus Tryphon. Eunice may have been married at the time. We know his wife was from Apamea. Or he may have been captured much younger. However, it happened, Eunice was enslaved put in chains, driven to a Syrian port, and likely transported by ship to the Aegean hellhole of Delos. Delos hadn't always been that. It had started its life as a major Greek cult center, the legendary birthplace of Apollo and Artemis, and was crowned by a famous sanctuary dedicated to Zeus. During the time of Athenian supremacy, it had served as center of the Delian League, and held a vast sacred treasury that was later taken to Athens. But in the 160s BC, the same rough time frame as the birth of Eunice and Cleopatra Thea, the Athenians expelled the island's inhabitants and converted Delos into a major slave port, mainly in service to Rome. Slavery was utterly endemic to Roman society, a situation exacerbated by a glut of slaves stemming from their recent conquests. The Third Macedonian War and the Roman destruction of Corinth and Carthage resulted in the enslavement of tens, possibly hundreds of thousands. But with economics the sole consideration, Rome's appetite for slaves remained ravenous. The constant demand was mainly serviced by pirates operating from the Cilician coast, technically Seleucid territory, as well as out of Crete. In this time period, having never seen or heard of a Pompey, eastern Mediterranean pirates acted with near impunity. On barren Delos under the scorching sun, the enslaved huddled in desolate groups as others decided their fate. In what was largely a random proposition, Eunice ended up rolling snake eyes, because he was purchased for the estate of a major landowner on the Roman island of Sicily. Sicily hadn't always been Roman. In fact, it was a fairly recent development. Up until the First Punic War, the island had mainly been Carthaginian and Greek, But by the end of the Second Punic War, a Roman consul could proudly state that no Carthaginian remains in Sicily. Over the next few decades, huge tracts of agricultural land were gobbled up by Roman elites, and the exploitation of the islands enslaved ramped up to pure brutality. Again, economics was the primary driver— The glut of slaves had created a situation where it made more sense to work someone to death than buy a new slave, than pay anything for their upkeep. Which brings us to the hero of our story, an ancient historian and Sicilian native named Diodorus Siculus. The reason he's our hero today is that we'd know virtually nothing about Eunice's life if Diodorus hadn't written it all down. He also fleshes out the horrific condition suffered by Sicilian slaves. He notes that slaves were driven and branded like cattle, and that their masters took no care to provide either necessary food or clothing for them, so that most of them were forced to rob and steal to get these necessities. At first, they used to murder travelers upon the highway when only one or two were together, Afterwards, they would enter into little villages by night and pillage poor men's houses and forcibly carry away whatever they found and kill anyone who opposed them, so that all places were full of slaughters and murders, as if an army of thieves and robbers had been dispersed all over the island, which is pretty horrific, but it only gets worse. According to Diodorus, the governors of the provinces did what they could to suppress them, but they did not dare punish them, because the masters who possessed the slaves were rich and powerful. So the Roman officials governing Sicily had to turn a blind eye to violent crime for fear of losing their jobs, or worse. And you may not be surprised when Diodorus reports that the slaves, therefore, being in this distress, and vilely beaten and scourged beyond all reason, were now resolved not to bear it any longer. They began to meet, they began to make plans, and eventually they found a leader. As it happened, our friend Eunice had been enslaved to a Sicilian landowner named Antigone's, whose estates were in the central Sicilian city of Enna, Over the course of his captivity, he learned to use charm and trickery to make his life more bearable. Well aware of the Roman stereotype of Syria as the exotic East, Eunice played his role to the hilt. Diodorus introduces Eunice as follows He was a magician and conjurer, he pretended to foretell future events. Revealed to him, as he said, by the gods in his dreams. He also pretended that he saw the gods when he was awake, and they declared to him what was to come to pass. By chance, many of these things afterwards proved true. The predictions which were not fulfilled were ignored, but those which did come to pass were everywhere applauded, so that Eunice grew more and more celebrated. Just in case this wasn't enough, Eunice also used a magician's trick to breathe flames of fire out of his mouth as from a burning lamp, and so would prophesy as though he had been, at that time, inspired by Apollo. He also claimed that the Syrian goddess, likely Astarte, had appeared to him and told him that he should reign. And this he declared not only to others, but often to his own master. Now, his master, Antigonus thought Eunice was hilarious. In fact, he took Eunice with him to feasts and parties and told him to go around the table and tell each party-goer how they'd be treated in his future kingdom. For the most part, Eunice told the super-rich landowners that in his kingdom, they'd all be treated well which they loved to hear, and he made them laugh, and they gave him lots of food, and everyone was happy. Well, yeah, okay, not everyone. In the same town, Enna, there was another landowner named Damophilus. According to Diodorus, Damophilus was particularly brutal to his slaves branding them on their cheeks with the sharp points of iron pins and chaining them up in slave pens. Supposedly, his wife Megalus was even worse. In 135 BC, Diodorus reports that the slaves who had been so cruelly used were enraged by this like wild beasts and plotted together to rise in arms and cut the throats of their masters. To this extent, they consulted Eunice and asked him whether the gods would give them success in their designs. Eunice made it clear that the gods would grant success to their revolt, which was basically all the go-ahead they needed. Soon, about 400 of them gathered in a field near Enna and armed themselves as far as the occasion permitted. Eunice then led the small army, while breathing fire out of his mouth, to break down the city gates and head for the wealthy villas. Diodorus reports that, entering the houses, they made such a great slaughter that they did not even spare the suckling children, but plucked them violently from their mother's breasts and dashed them against the ground. Diodorus describes wives being used in front of their husbands and a general orgy of carnage. Inspired by this, the other slaves who were living in Enna decided to join the revolt. According to Diodorus, first they executed their rage and cruelty upon their own masters and then fell to murdering others. The poster couple for slave abuse— Damophilus and his wife Magallus, were found hiding in an orchard. They were dragged to Enna's theater, where all the freed slaves assembled. Damophilus was apparently a highly skilled orator, because he was actually on the verge of talking his way out of things when one slave ran him through with a sword and the other cut off his head with an axe. Eunice gave the wife, Megillus, over to her former slaves for punishment, who whipped and tormented her, then threw her down a steep precipice. But in a surprising turn, the crowd also declared that they would be kind in every respect to their daughter, because of her pity and compassion toward the slaves, and her readiness always to be helpful to them. Diodorus reports the crowd even tasked some trustworthy men to escort the girl safely to Katana. He also remarks that this showed that the savage behavior of the slaves toward others arose not from their own cruel nature, but from a desire to have revenge for the wrongs they had suffered. Flush with their surprising success, Diodorus reports that the freed slaves made Eunice king, because he was the leader and author of the defection. For his throne name, Eunice took the name of the king who was having his own success back in Syria. I mean, what could he really call himself but King Antiochus? Diodorus records that, putting a diadem upon his head, and graced with all the emblems of royalty, he called his wife, who was a Syrian from the same city, to be called queen, and chose such as he judged to be most prudent, to be his counselors. If Eunice's wife shared a similar sensibility, she also may have picked a Seleucid throne name, maybe Laodicea or possibly Cleopatra. The first command of King Antiochus was to put all the prisoners from Enna to death— except for those that were skillful in making of weapons, whom he fettered and set to work. In a call back to his previous life as Eunice the fire-breathing slave, Antiochus also spared the wealthy landowners who'd treated him with kindness and given him food back at those earlier feasts. His clemency was apparently not extended to his own former master, Antigone's who died at Antiochus' own hand. With the help of a former enslaved Greek named Achaeus, described as a wise man and a good soldier, Antiochus then, within the space of three days, got together above 6,000 men, armed with what they could, by any way or means, lay their hands upon. The makeshift army began to ravage the countryside, plundering estates, killing landowners, and freeing more slaves, who quickly joined their army. Separately, a slave named Cleon, described as a Cilician from near Mount Taurus, persuaded some of the neighboring slaves to join him in a sudden revolt. Cleon captured the southern city of Agrigentum, then began marching north with an army of 5,000. Roman officials held out hope that the two slave armies would fight each other. But yeah, sorry, that's just not going to happen. Shortly after arriving at Enna, Cleon signed on to be Antiochus's right-hand man. Within a month, the effective triumvirate of Antiochus, Cleon, and the soldier Achaeus were leading a force of 20,000 which is about when the Romans finally decided it was time to take some action. And, as some of you may have guessed, we're heading into what's commonly known as the First Servile War. As an initial step, a praetor named Lucius Hypsaeus was dispatched from Rome and put in charge of a body of 8,000 Sicilian militia. But, In the ensuing conflict, the freed slaves emerged victorious. According to Diodorus, soon after this first battle, Antiochus's army increased to 200,000 men, which may be a generally inflated number and might also include women and children. But either way, that's a pretty big number. Antiochus also began referring to his followers as Syrians, though it's unclear how many actually came from Syria. Diodorus notes that, though they fought against the Romans themselves, yet they often came off as conquerors, and were very seldom defeated. As the conflict progressed, the Romans despaired of an effective means of resecuring the island. The tenure of one praetor, Marcus Perperna, was apparently considered a relative bright spot because whatever he accomplished earned him a Roman ovation. On the flip side, Perperna's presence was hardly decisive because he was only one of several praetors sent that same year to try to quell the revolt. By the end of 135, Antiochus' army gained control of most major cities freeing all the former slaves and enslaving the former citizens. Which means that, subject to the obvious caveats, there was a King Antiochus ruling in Sicily at the same time as Antiochus VII was ruling in Syria. Aside from the threat to Roman grain, the greater threat was the glaring example, that slaves could rise up, overthrow their masters, and fend off a Roman response. Diodorus notes that, inspired by the Sicilian rebellion, revolts broke out in Rome, in Attica, and at the major slave-trading port of Delos, as well as, quote, many other places. In all these cases, the magistrates made a quick response and promptly fell upon the slaves and put them all to death. Though the other revolts were all put down, removing their source of inspiration was becoming a major priority. The following year, 134, the Romans sent the consul Caius Fulvius Flaccus to recover the island, but he was unsuccessful. The next year, 133, they sent a consul named Lucius Calpurnius Piso. Piso managed to retake the city of Massana on the island's northeast tip, closest to the Italian mainland, and put all the slaves to death. Moving south along the coast, he began a siege of Tauromenium, but was unable to take the city. In 132, the siege of Tauromenium was continued by the consul Publius Rupilius. The freed slaves holding the city were made to endure unspeakable hardship, with Diodorus noting they were eventually forced to butcher one another for food. But even driven to such extremes, the siege was only ended by treachery. Diodorus reports that at last Serapion, a Syrian, betrayed the citadel, and all the fugitives fell into his hands. Rupilius had them all scourged and thrown off a cliff. The consular army then marched inland toward the central city of Enna, Antiochus's effective capital. The city was also subjected to a lengthy siege, with the revolt leaders trapped inside, and the situation grew increasingly desperate. Finally, Cleon, Antiochus's second-in-command, decided to go out fighting— As Diodorus relates, he made a sally from the city and fought like a hero, exposing his body to open view. But, as you probably guessed, he was eventually captured and slain. And soon afterward, the city of Enna was also betrayed to the Romans. Antiochus, not being a military man, failed to follow Cleon's example. And instead retreated with six hundred men to the top of some nearby cliffs. As Rupilius and the Romans closed in, his followers decided to cut one another's throats rather than be taken alive, a dark foreshadowing of the events at Masada around two centuries later. Antiochus was found hiding in a cave, along with a few of his closest companions. According to Diodorus, he was thrown into prison and eventually consumed by lice. The fate of his former wife and queen is unknown. For the rest of the year, Publius Rupilius crisscrossed the island, re-securing major cities and recapturing former slaves. He supposedly crucified 20,000 as an example to all the others. By the end of 132 BC, the previous, pretty horrible, situation had been reimposed. But the largest threat was never really extinguished. The example of a large-scale slave revolt would be reenacted twice more over the next half-century, and only finally end with the death of Spartacus. As for Eunice, the would-be Syrian king of Sicily, there was one more tangible remnant. Bronze coins, minted in the city of Enna, struck in the name of King Antiochus. A brief epilogue to the story took place that same year. Diodorus notes that when Aristonicus, without any proper rights, sought to gain the kingdom of Asia— all the slaves, by reason of the cruelty of their masters, joined with him, and filled many towns and cities with bloodshed and slaughter. As I covered back in episode T11, Aristonicus was the Pergamene rebel who styled himself as Eumenes Third, and tried to halt the annexation of Pergamon by Rome. At least part of his local appeal was offering freedom to all the enslaved who agreed to support his cause, which was pretty clearly a tactic inspired by the recent events in Sicily. Aristonicus's revolt endured for years and was only finally brought to an end by a consul named Marcus Perperna, yet another Sicilian connection. I mentioned Perperna as the praetor who'd had some success against Eunice's forces and been granted a Roman ovation. And in 129 BC, Perperna took a consular army to crush what was, at least in part, another slave rebellion. According to Justin, Perperna defeated Aristonicus in their first engagement and took him prisoner. Upon which his rebellion collapsed. Justin notes that the treasure of Attalus, the inheritance of the people of Rome, Perperna loaded on ships and dispatched to Rome. Aristonicus, the would be Eumenes the third, was also sent to the capital to be paraded triumphantly through the streets, then strangled in the Tullianum. The following year, Perperna's successor, Manius Aquilius, would divide the former Pergamine kingdom among Rome and its Anatolian allies, Cappadocia and Pontus. At roughly the same time, according to Granger, a new Roman road was completed. The Via Aquilia crossed Anatolia from the Hellespont to the port of Sidae close to the western boundary of Seleucid territory. Even as King Antiochus Seventh was fighting for his life in the snows of Media, the city where he'd spent his youth became a link in a growing chain, designed to bring the Roman army to further eastern conquests. Hello, fans of the Seleucids and the Diadochoi. My name is Dominic. Long ago, even the Hellenistic Greeks knew that Egypt was truly old. The calm waters of the Nile had witnessed countless generations, and on the banks of that river, a skilled and creative people had fashioned the greatest kingdom on earth. If you like your history ancient, then the History of Egypt podcast is for you. A tale of pyramids, pharaohs, gods, and magic, told through the eyes of the ancients themselves. And now, back to the ancient world, with your wonderful host, Scott Chesworth. Enjoy!